Good morning, good morning, good morning. We always wondered what we would do um, as we began to extend rows uh, in, the, in the gym. And they've got these rolling carts of chairs back there that just look like a ton of chairs. And then all of a sudden, last week, we ran out of chairs. And we didn't know what we were going to do. And the school located some more chairs for us this morning. So next week, we should have some more chairs being able to go back if we can figure out how to do it. So thanks for your patience. Thanks for loving to get close to each other, um, getting to know the person next to you. Um, as people kind of scoot in, there should be a couple strays floating around. So it's good to see you this morning. Glad that you are here. I want to do something a little, not necessarily different, but a, a little celebratory as we get started. Um, the majority of you probably don't know. Uh, the smallest percentage of you in here uh, may have already forgotten, but this week marks the the second birthday of Redemption Hill Church. Yeah, happy birthday. Um, two years ago, um, January 20th, uh, some of us gathered together in a little chapel at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church on, in the fan uh, and talked about what it would be like to plant a church that was centered on the gospel um, and deliberately attempting uh, by God's grace to cultivate our soul, to reflect his character and his glory, and to see other churches planted throughout this city and throughout this region that would do the same thing, that by God's grace, we would see communities transformed and lives transformed and families transformed. And, and two years ago, this week, uh, we got together and prayed and, and began that process. And then in May of 2008, just 20 months ago, we came to Holton for the very first time. Uh, and for some of you that were here, we were actually over there in the cafeteria um, where it was a little bit smaller and we could make it feel a whole lot bigger as more people began to come. So if you'll indulge me for just a moment, some of you will probably really appreciate this, but I want you to take a look back at some of the pictures from that first night and see if you recognize some of the folks. There's, there's Grace Covenant. That was the little room. Not many more people came. Um, let's see, what else is up there? Keep going. Woo, there we go. Yeah, John's not here anymore, sorry. John's in Charlottesville. Hey, look at Mr. Droko. Yeah, full house. Deceptive picture. Look at that. Really, there was supposed to be some music, but it must have not worked. Look at that. <laughs> I had to do that for Dan. Dan, are you still in here? I had to do that for Dan. If anything, if anything encapsulates that night, it was, it was Matthew. I mean, that, that's what that first night was all about. But by, by God's grace, um, he has continued to work in our lives and, and go from, from that first meeting at Grace Covenant um, with about 45 people, uh, friends and family, coming to hear what God was going to do to, by his grace, what you, what you see around you this morning in about two years. Um, and it's continued to be uh, an unbelievably powerful tool of God's 
sanctification in my life. You've been an unbelievable source of grace and encouragement to our family. And my prayer is that this church, as a people, we would continue to be a source of encouragement and grace and, and instruments in God's hand of redemption and restoration to the city. So happy birthday. You're two years old. You still make a mess. Um, still think you know what the world is all about. Um, but by God's grace, he's shaping, changing us, and, and making us new. So uh, let me pray for us, and we'll keep going and, uh, and celebrate uh, who he is, what he has done, and what he's continuing to do in our life. Father, thank you um, for the gift of your mercy and your grace, uh, your willingness to involve us into your mission of redemption and restoration, uh, for taking very uh, selfish and self-absorbed and self-righteous people like myself and calling us to you and, and working a new heart and working new desires into our life and then calling us into your mission to be your people, uh, to reflect your glory to this city that other people might know you and experience the joy and the transformation and the redemption that comes from you. Um, it's a continually humbling privilege to be a part of your church, to continue to be reminded that without you, I am left to myself with no hope at all, but because of you and your mercy and your grace, there is great joy, great hope for transformation, great power for change, not just in the future, but right now. So I thank you for that. I praise you for your grace at work in this church, uh, your continued mercy towards us. You have been far more gracious than we deserve, and we thank you, and we look forward to the years to come. Uh, the continuing work of your mercy and grace in our lives and in this church. May we be a people who reflect you, who honor you, who esteem your name and your reputation in this city, who are able to plant churches to do the same, that more people in Richmond, that more people in Central Virginia, and that more people across the world will know you and will know the joy of being saved and transformed by you. And we ask this, Lord, not that Redemption Hill would have a name, that people would think about us, that people would make much of us, but that you would be made much of. That you would be made much of. That your name would be hallowed in this place. We ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. This week, let me drink some coffee. Or the last thing you're ever taught to drink when you have to speak in public for a long period of time. Does nothing but dry your mouth out. This week, we are continuing our look at the disciples' prayer in Matthew chapter 6 in our effort to start off 2010 um, and 2010 and the years forward uh, to live a life of resolve, to lose our religion, to live a life with resolve, to be less religious, to live a life with resolve, to be transformed by God's grace, to reflect his character. We've begun looking at this unbelievably powerful tool of God's, this work of God's grace in the Lord's Prayer and what we're calling the Disciples' Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And we're asking God, according to his will, that our hearts be submitted. Our hearts be submitted to his mercy, to his grace. As we talked about last week, to his revolution of grace, his desire to absolutely upend, dismantle, and then rebuild our life, our hearts, our souls, our desires to reflect him and his purposes. And, and so the Lord's Prayer is a, is a prayer, as we talked about last week, that invites us into that change. It invites us into that revolution. And as we'll see this week, really briefly, it invites us into God's process of cultivation. If you're around here for any length of time at all, it's something we, I try to talk a lot about. It's something that I lean into a great deal, is that God's work in our life is a process of cultivation. 
It's an ongoing process of identifying the weeds and the rocks and the thorns that get in the way of the ground and his process of grace uprooting those things from the ground so that the work of his grace and the work of his spirit and the work of his mercy can produce fruit in our lives that reflects his character and his nature. But it's an ongoing process. It's not a one and done deal. It's not a prayer that we pray at any point in our life and all of a sudden from that moment on, we're absolutely who God wants us to be. It's a process of cultivation from the day we come to know him to the day that we see him and are transformed into his image. God is at work in us. It's a process of cultivation. The Lord's prayer is an invitation not only to that revolution of grace we talked about last week, but it's an invitation to the process of cultivation. It's an invitation to submit our hearts and our souls into the hands of the most skilled gardener and craftsman ever to be, and by his grace and by his mercy, for him to do a work into our hearts, to identify the thorns and the the stones and the sticks and the weeds of self-righteousness, of self-indulgence and self-worship, and to remove those things by his grace that we might have a heart that would reflect his glory and his purposes. And so with that, we've been looking into this prayer because that is what this prayer is all about. It's not an invitation to a ritual, It's not an invitation to a practice. It's not a program that we follow to check off all the good things that we have done so that we can be assured of whatever we understand God's blessing to be. It's an invitation to submit ourselves to his work in our lives. And so as we've looked each week, and we'll go quicker this week as we get to the petition that we're gonna look at, uh, God started off where every good gardener has to start, and he takes an assessment of the soil. And we looked in chapter six of Matthew, starting in verse five, how God begins to assess the soil of our hearts through this beautiful gift he gives us called prayer. And he begins to diagnose the weeds and the sticks and the stones that are in there. And we began to see that the greatest thing that inhibits our understanding of who he is, the greatest thing that inhibits our joy and our encouragement and our passion in being transformed into his image is this unbelievable weed, this unbelievable stone, this unbelievable disease in the soil of our heart that continues to take things like prayer and things like communion with God and worship of God and turn them back in on ourselves. You know, any good gardener knows before they can plant a garden and expect any kind of fruitful harvest, they've got to know what the soil is like. And they've got to deal with the soil and tend to the soil and treat the soil and prepare the ground. And Jesus does this in those verses in Matthew chapter 6, 5 through through 8, and he identifies the deepest need of the soil of our hearts, and that's that it begins to be ripped up from the ground up, from the root up, and he begins to identify that even in moments of worship, Even in moments of of prayer and communion with God, our sin is so deep. Our need for grace is so pervasive that we can take those kinds of moments and turn them back into moments of worship of ourselves. Do you experience that? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I try not to mock too much when I'm up here. It's very easy to mock when you're up here, and it's very easy to do that. I try not to do it too much, but all of you know what I'm talking about. All of you know what it's like to be in a setting like this and, and for us to go into a time of prayer and, and for you to bow your heads and for you to try to listen in on the key words of what whoever's praying is saying and, and know just the right time to go, mm-hmm, mm, yeah, mm-hmm. You know, just the right time to go, yes, yes, Jesus, mm-hmm. All in an effort for that person next to you to think you're really involved in that prayer and engaged in that prayer and really as spiritual as you want them to think that you're being. You know what it's like to take worship of God and opportunities of ministry and encouragement in the life of other people and turn them back into a chance to build your reputation, to build your name, 
And that's what Jesus is saying as he's beginning to teach us about prayer and he's beginning to undo our hearts and our lives and to take the religion out as he's beginning to say before you can understand what this life is all about, what this process of cultivation is all about, what a life that reflects my glory is all about, you've got to see how deep your need is and just how deep the sin in your heart is. And so Jesus begins to unpack those things in chapter six. And then he begins to teach us from that point forward how it is that we pray. As he unpacks the need and he unpacks the depth of the sin in our heart, he says, this then is how you should pray. Pray then like this, Jesus says in verse eight. And he begins and he says, our Father, our Father who is in heaven. You see, you have to know who you're dealing with. You have to know who it is that you're dealing with when you pray. You have to know who it is that you are coming to in this process. You see, there's a confidence that the people that Jesus was talking about earlier were lacking about who this person is that they would pray to. And as Jesus would say, there are some who pray and they, they build up a, a fervor, they build up a frenzy, they stack on all these words and they do all these things that they're supposed to do ultimately because they don't believe that the God they're praying to is actually interested or will listen. He says this is not the basis for how we commune with God and how we understand God. Instead of trying to earn his favor, earn his ear, earn his attention by doing these things, pray them like this, our, our Father who is in heaven. And from that point forward, Jesus sets the framework around our relationship with God and he takes it out of one of duty and religion and puts it into the realm of family and intimacy. And we talked a few weeks ago about the fact that some of the struggles that many of us have, not only in prayer, but in our life with God, in our fellowship with God, in our process of, of discipleship and transformation is that we fail to understand what it's really like to be a child of God and what it's really like to address God as Father. But when we understand who he is as our Father and who we are as his children, a confidence begins to come, a boldness begins to come, and a humility begins to come. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we talk about the petition this week. So he said, this then is how you pray, our Father who is in heaven. It's not a duty, it's not a ritual. It's a relationship that you have with a Father who is perfect and who is good and who, is, who loves you. He says, then say, hallowed be thy name. And he takes it out of duty, puts it into family and relationship, and then he begins to shape another perspective. And he begins to say, pray then this way, hallowed be your name. God, make your name, your glory, the chief desire of my heart. God, I am so prone to want my name and my reputation God, make your name and your purposes and your glory the chief design of my heart. And we saw a few weeks ago, that's not just empty rhetoric that good Christians pray, but it is the purpose for which we were created and it is the purpose for which God for all eternity has done all that he has purposed himself to do for his glory. It is a prayer that says, God, make your desires the desires of my heart. God, make your desires for my life the desires of my heart, the most beautiful thing to me, the most satisfying thing to me because right now I like me some me. And this prayer, as you begin to pray it, not as some kind of ritual or structure, but as a, as a tool, as in see it as an instrument in God's hand, begins to, begins to work 
at the roots of sin in your life. This prayer really is living and active and working in you and on you as you begin to pray and to think and to meditate on it. And he says, pray in this way, hallowed be thy name in my life, in this world. God, make your purposes be the chief desire of my heart, of the hearts of your people, your church. And then he says, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we talked about this last week and really how this goes hand in hand with the first petition that God make his purposes known, his glory, the chief desire of our heart. When we pray, as Jesus taught us that God's kingdom come and his will be done, what we're praying is, God, I want what you want. I want your glory to be my chief desire. Now, God, do whatever you need to do to make that a reality in my life. God, your will be done in my life. God, I let go of the pursuit of my name. I let go of the pursuit of my reputation. I let go of the very petty and futile pursuit of my own kingdom and my own little world. And I say, God, your glory, your kingdom is what I want now, God. Your will be done. What I want more than anything is for your will to be done. Do in me and then through me whatever you need to do for that to be a reality. Dangerous, dangerous desire dangerous desire. God, to pursue his glory and to cultivate your soul will take you sometimes to places that you do not want to go to accomplish in you and through you what you never actually dreamed. And when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are submitting ourselves to a good father and a good king that his purposes rule our hearts and that he would do in us and through us whatever he deemed necessary for that to become a reality. This is part of God's instrument. This is part of God's tools to cultivate our soul to reflect the character of Christ. And Jesus is far less interested in giving you some kind of pattern in which you should pray so that you can begin to think that you're special and righteous because you did and said what he said to do. He is after your hearts. This is what we've talked about every week as we've done this. This is what we talk about every week when we get together. He's not after getting you to act a certain way, to look a certain way. He's after your heart. And he's after the desires of your heart and the actions of your life to pour out of the transformation that comes by his grace at your deepest levels, in your soul. You see, it's only, it's only as God is doing the work of cultivating your soul that your desires begin to change and your heart begins submitted to his will and you can pray, hallowed be thy name. God, I want your glory. God, I want your purposes. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's only when we can submit ourselves and say, I'm laying down the pursuit of myself and the pursuit of my name and the pursuit of my wants that we can continue on in prayer and say, Father, give us this day our, our daily bread. God, I am content. God, I am content. I will be content with today's bread. And I will forgive as I have been forgiven. It's only as God is doing the work of transforming your heart and your soul to make his glory the chief and most beautiful desire of your heart that you can begin then to pray as he continues on Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so this morning, we're gonna take the time that we've got left to look at this next petition. What does it mean in light of what God has already said in this prayer? 
What does it mean to pray with earnestness, with sincerity, with integrity? Give us this day our daily bread. You see, we can't understand what Jesus is really teaching us and what he's really saying here if we take this petition, which we often do, and divorce it from what he has already said. Is see, we're all okay with this petition. If there's any petition that none of us really have a tough time arguing, it's this one. Give us this day our daily bread. But what we tend to do is we tend to take this petition and pull it out of the prayer and divorce it from all that has come before it and the relationship and the framework for which it finds itself in. And when we divorce it from its framework and from the relationship to the other petitions, we misunderstand what he's actually saying. And this is a very, very important petition in the prayer that Jesus is teaching us. It's actually the central petition. It's actually the petition on which the entire prayer turns. Jesus puts it there because he wants us to see something. He wants us to understand something. He wants us to know that as our hearts are being cultivated and transformed to want what he wants, that will absolutely transform the way we understand how we live this life on this earth that is still riddled with the effects of sin. We won't ask rightly for what we need and what we need to pursue his purposes in this world if we don't understand what he has already said in the beginning of this prayer. And we tend to take that thing out of its framework and out of its perspective and we tend to misuse it. But what we'll see in the the weeks to come is that in some way, every petition that's come before this one, give us this day our daily bread, has actually led to it. And every petition that we'll talk about in the next two weeks actually is affected by it. This one is really a hinge on which the entire prayer swings. And there's two classic ways of understanding what this petition, give us this day our daily bread, actually means. And we'll take a look at both of them. And and there's a second one. The second one that we'll look at is the one I'm really most interested in because I think it's the one that we tend to overlook. I think it's the one we tend to dismiss. And it's certainly the one that we tend to write less about. Um, But when we pray, and when Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, the most common understanding, and I I think it's right, I don't think it's wrong, one of the most common understandings of how to understand this is to understand Jesus' petition as a reference back to the Old Testament story of God providing for his people in the wilderness. If you'll remember, God delivered his people Israel from slavery to Egypt in a miraculous way through the plagues, delivering them through the Red Sea, crushing Pharaoh and his army in this unbelievably cataclysmic collapsing of the sea on top of them, delivering his people into the wilderness, taking them to the land that he had promised them to be their God and for them to be his people. And along the way, as he was taking them to that land, God would feed them on a daily basis with this heavenly bread called manna, which one day maybe we'll learn what it was actually like um, because we really don't know. I tend to think it's like a Ritz cracker with honey. I tend to think, what would I want manna to taste like? It'd be like a Ritz cracker with a little bit of honey on it. Um, so I think about manna like a Ritz cracker with honey. Maybe like the little Ritz bits. They're a little bit smaller and you gather them. I don't know. You can think about it tasting whatever you want it to taste like. That's what I want it to taste like. And so God told his people that every morning I'm going to cover the earth with this manna. And what you're supposed to do is you're going to go out each morning and you're going to collect what you need for that day to take care of yourself and to take care of your family. And you would bring it back into your, to your tent and this is what you and your family would eat. But if you collected too much, if you tried to grab for yourself what you thought you would need for the next day because you really weren't sure that God was actually gonna provide it for you, you know what happened to it? It would spoil. Overnight, if you tried to keep more than you actually needed, it would actually spoil. And what God was, was after in this with his people was he was trying to teach them to trust him. 
He was trying to teach his people to trust him and to enjoy his provision that he was giving them that day with a trust and a sufficiency in him to provide what they needed the next day. You see, God desires for his people to be dependent upon him and not anxious about what's to come. Our Father desires us to trust him, to trust in his goodness, to trust in his mercy, to trust in his desire to provide for his children. He's a good dad. And he wants his people to trust him to provide what we need for today and not be anxious about what we need for tomorrow. And this is what he was trying to teach his people. He's trying to teach his, his church that he wants us to pray and he wants us to ask for all that we need to do his will on earth today. Remember, don't divorce it from the petitions that came ahead. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God, give us this day our daily bread. Father, I trust you. What I want is what you want, your kingdom, your desire, your purposes, your glory in my life and all of these circumstances and every circumstance I live in, every relationship I find myself in. God, give me today what I need to do what you have called me to do. Whatever that is, I am your son and I trust you. You are a good dad. Jesus is after our trust. He's after our trust in his goodness and his sufficiency to provide for what we need to see his kingdom advanced in our life and through our life here on earth. It's a real submission of, of heart and of will and of trust. And the things that we have done with this petition, with this prayer, our legion, and I, I can't really go into all of them, but the clock says that I can go into one of them. The clock says I can go into one of them. I'm gonna go to John. And I'm going to read you something. John chapter 15. It's not going to come up on the screen. Um, so don't sit there in anxiousness. Um, if you've got a Bible, you can go there. John chapter 15. I want you to listen to something that Jesus said. And then I want you to listen to what one of my living heroes said about this. And the way we tend to divorce this and butcher it. John chapter 15 verses 16 and 17. Jesus said, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now I want you to listen to one of my, my heroes in the faith said about this. This is what he said. John chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. The logic is crucial, he said. Why is the Father going to give the disciples what they ask in Jesus' name? Why is he going to provide for them what they have asked? Answer, because they have been sent to bear fruit. The reason the Father gives the disciples the gift of prayer is because Jesus has given them a mission. In fact, the grammar of John 15, 16 implies that the reason Jesus gives them the mission is so that they will be able to enjoy the power of prayer. Don't miss this. I send you to bear fruit so that whatever you ask the Father, he may give you. So I'd never tire of saying the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of a believer is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. I wish I had come up with this. Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what to pray for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It's as though the field commander, Jesus, has called in the troops and he's given them a crucial mission. Go and bear fruit. And he's handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters. And he said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. 
If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send in air cover whenever you or your comrades need it. But what have millions of Christians done? What have millions of believers done with this gift of prayer, with this willingness to ask? They've stopped believing that they're actually in a war. There's no urgency. There's no watching. There's no vigilance. There's no strategic planning. Just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what do they do with their walkie-talkie? They've tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy house or boat or car, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. Brilliant. If we are going to even sustain the will to pray in our own hearts, we must talk about something else first, namely war. Namely this morning, the need for our hearts to be cultivated because of the presence of indwelling sin that is so pervasive that it takes something as precious as prayer and worship and turns it back in upon ourselves. We have so domesticated prayer, he says, that it's no longer in many of our lives and churches what it was created to be, a wartime walkie-talkie for the accomplishment of mission commands. Until we feel the desperation of a bombing raid or the thrill of a new strategic offensive for the gospel, we will not pray as Jesus has taught us. And Jesus is teaching us through this prayer, through this petition as it finds itself in this prayer, that our Father is good and he has called us to himself and he has called us and given us this possibility of even saying, God, I want what you want and I know that it's not the reality in my heart right now the way it needs to be. Gather, Father, make your name hallowed in my heart. Make your name the central glory of my heart. May your kingdom come in my heart because I want mine and I want yours ultimately. Make your kingdom come. Do with me whatever you will. And now, Father, give me what I need this day to do the thing you've called me to do to advance your kingdom in my heart and in my life. This is what Jesus is praying when he says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, another thing I want to point out before we go to the second way of understanding this petition, which I think ties very well with the first, but I think completes it in a way that we tend to to miss, is, is I want to be honest and at least acknowledge the struggle that a lot of people have still with understanding God as a good father to understand who they are in relationship to God and now actually believing that God cares about you to such a degree to provide for you in your life whatever you need to accomplish the mission that he has called you to be on, the purpose for which he created you. See, some of you pray and you get disgruntled and you get, and you get frustrated because you haven't grasped the, the relational perspective and the relational dynamic and the relational framework with which Jesus is teaching us to pray. You still have this understanding of a duty or a ritual that you have to accomplish and, and you're missing this understanding of God as a father and us as a child and approaching him in that kind of relationship. And then, then others of you tend to, like, the, like Piper was saying in what I read, take this idea of prayer and use it for your own needs and your own resources and you end up, whether intentionally or unintentionally, but practically beginning to treat God like a genie in a lamp. But if you just rub it the right way, he'll come out and he'll give you whatever wish you desire. Isn't that the purpose of being the child of the king? To rub the lamp to get whatever I want? Isn't that what princes and princesses do? Don't they get what they want? 
And so some of us have misunderstood this relationship and, and this dynamic, and now we've turned God into this genie that's stuffed inside a lamp that if we just rub, that we'll get whatever we want. But who would give, just think logically, who would give a child a genie lamp? Seriously. Look, if you see my son running around this place with a genie and a lamp or in a bottle, run. With every instinct and breath that you've got, run away from my four-year-old son who's got a genie and a lamp that can get whatever it is that he wants. The world might rain down Legos if he rubs that thing the wrong way. All of you might end up being girls. I mean, there's just, there's no telling when he rubs that thing what he's going to get. Would it get, be better if a 10-year-old had it? What about a 15-year-old? I give a 15-year-old, they know everything, right? They know what they need, right? I'm about a 20-year-old. They're older than a 15-year-old. 15-year-olds are silly. They're still in school. I'm in 20. I'm in college. I got it straight. I'm about a 30-year-old. Smarter than a 20-year-old. What you see in the Bible is that because of sin, because of the pervasiveness of sin, we're never actually in a place where God as a genie in a bottle would ever be a good thing for us. Because of sin, the, the genie in the bottle would never be a good thing for us because we're always stupid. No matter how old we are, because of sin, we're always stupid. And that's why when we understand this relationship with God, especially when it comes to prayer, we have to understand this relationship with our dad because what we need is not a genie, we need a dad. If it was a genie, some point in my early and mid-twenties, I would have rubbed that lamp really hard for the wrong wife. And if God was a genie, I'd be in a very difficult place. What I needed was not a genie and a lamp. I needed a dad to deal with. And this is what Jesus is teaching us in this prayer and in this framework and understanding this relationship with God. I learned this from a guy teaching about parenting, but as I thought about this prayer, it seemed far more fitting as it's fitting in parenting but he said this he said when kids ask something of their parents good parents distinguish between the need and the child's interpretation of the need did you get that good parents distinguish between the need and the child's interpretation of the need their request and the need they're not the same and good parents see this good parents don't respond to unwise proposals but they discern the underlying desire because kids always think their interpretation of the request is the same as their need. God looks, longs, loves his children, but he is a good dad, a good father, a wise father, and he looks at our desires, he looks at our requests, and he looks at what's underlying that need. Good dads, good parents. Look at what's under unwise proposals. Richard Sibb said that God will always give you the value of your request, but not always in kind. The Apostle Paul, he prayed three times for this thorn in his flesh to be removed. We don't know what the thorn was. We don't know if it was an illness. We don't know if it was a speech deal. We don't know if it was a literal pain in his body. We don't know what the thorn in his flesh was, but whatever it was, Paul prayed three separate times. He told the Corinthian church for God to remove this thorn in his flesh. Why? Because he wanted to be effective for God. 
And his fear was, his petition was, God, I want to do what you have designed me to do. I want to do what you've purposed me to do. I want to fulfill the mission that you've given me in my life for your glory. God, take this thorn away from my flesh so that I can be what you have called me to be and do what you've called me to do. And God told the Apostle Paul, you think the way to be strong is to get rid of this thorn. I'm telling you, I'm a good dad. The way for you to be strong is to keep it. Good parents look underneath unwise proposals and they understand what the need is in the heart of the request. God always gives you what you want. Would you have asked if you knew all that he knows? Did you hear that? God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew all that he knows. See, here's this thing. As our hearts begin to be cultivated by his grace, and we begin to understand more and more and more what it is to be his child and for him to be a good dad, even if we didn't have a good dad, even if we didn't have a dad, he is our father. He is a good dad. And as we begin to understand what it means for him to be our father and us to be his child, the most mature of us, the maturity that comes is when we begin to act more childlike and come to our father with honesty and with need, but with the humility of knowing who he is and saying, here is what I want, but what I want ultimately is what you want and I trust you. I trust you to give me what you know I need. That is acting childlike. What I want from my son more than anything, not only when he's four, but when he's 40, if I'm still around, is to trust that I want what's best for him. And I want him to come to me and request of me with confidence, with absolute boldness and confidence, knowing that I'm his dad, knowing that I love him, and knowing that I will move mountains to do for him whatever I know is best for him. And I want him to have a confidence to come to me in that, to not be afraid of me, to not think that I don't love him, to not fear what I'm gonna do or what I'm gonna say, but to come to me because he trusts me, but because he knows that I love him and he's beginning to trust my love for him, I want him to come to me with whatever he feels like he needs, but trust that I will always give him what I know is best and what's good for him, and I want him to want that. And as he becomes more like that, he's actually becoming more childlike and less childish. Childishness is when we come and demand something of God. When my four and a half year old comes up to me as he does very often and declares to, to either I or, or Aaron that he knows more than we do. He's learned something on a show or someone's told him something that he never knew and he'll come up and, and ask me and sometimes being kind, he'll, he'll say, Dad, I don't know, do you know the sky was blue? You know, you know what, buddy? I never really noticed that, thanks. Well, I know more than you do, so... All right? Childishness is coming up to God, making these kinds of demands of God, proclaiming that we know what we need and what's best for us and what's best for his kingdom and his glory, that it would be best for God to give us what we know we need. That is childishness, and it's actually a lack of maturity. It's a degeneration. And as we begin to understand who he is as our father and who we are as his children, we actually become more childlike, coming to him with confidence because he's our father, and humility because he's our good father in heaven who knows what it is that we actually need. And that he will always, always give 
what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he actually knows. This is what Jesus is getting at in this prayer. He's after cultivating this in our hearts, getting under that selfishness and self-centeredness and arrogance and pride that chokes out our relationship with God. He's trying to undo this from, from the ground up. This is what he's saying when he says, pray then this way. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us this day what we need to do what you have called us to do and we trust that you will give us what we need today to do what you have called me to do in this circumstance. In this tough situation at home, in this tough situation at work, in this tough economic situation and my health is failing, give me what I need to be who you have called me to be in this circumstance. That's that's the classic and I think beautiful way of understanding what Jesus is saying when he's teaching us to pray this way. But there's another, another way to understand it. There's another aspect to it that I think goes right hand in hand with this that I think the scripture actually opens up for us that we tend to dismiss. When we talk about praying to God to give us what we need today to give us, to meet our needs this day, to do what he's called us to do, we're praying that, that God really meet tangible, physical needs very often. And that's great, but there's a spiritual reality that we tend to forget sometimes. There are spiritual needs that we tend to forget sometimes and there's an aspect of this prayer that Jesus teaches over in Luke that I think unpacks this more comprehensively and more beautifully and brings a fullness to our understanding. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, Jesus taught this prayer again. His disciples who had walked with him for three years now had observed Jesus countless times, I'm sure, in prayer with them, sometimes going alone to pray, in prayer with other people who were sick, who had just, they had observed Jesus' life and they were continuing to observe his life and they came to him very honestly and very simply and they said, you know, teach us to pray. Jesus, teach us to pray. Obviously, we don't pray like you. Teach us to pray. And so Jesus taught a more condensed version of the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, that, we, that we're going through in Matthew 6. And, and then he began to explain that prayer. And this is where we're going to find the fullness of our understanding and what it means to pray for God to give us our daily bread today. Chapter 11, verse 5. After he taught them that prayer, he said, he said this to them. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. So, just get this in the scene. I wish we took take some more time to paint the whole thing for you. But as Jesus goes into this story, he's actually going to get a laugh from the crowd. And the, the people that were listening, the disciples and the crowd that would have gathered to hear him teach, they'd be laughing as Jesus would teach this, this story because it would be absolutely foolishness for someone in that culture to, to begin to treat a guest the way that this man in the story is gonna treat his, his guest that comes to his house. See, hospitality in a way that we rarely experience it in our life and in this culture was a responsibility in that culture. And in many cultures around the world today, it's still a responsibility. So this man has a friend who shows up at his house at midnight and he has a responsibility to take care of that man, to be hospitable to his friend, to provide needs and, and food and, and shelter for that friend and that man. And so as Jesus is telling this story, what he's gonna get into is actually gonna, it's gonna cause a laugh from the people because it's just preposterous in some sense. And, and so the man in the parable realized his friend came in the middle of the night, uh-oh, I've got no bread, I've got an urgent need, 
It's my responsibility to provide for my friend who has just come, but I have absolutely no resources to fulfill this responsibility. So get this. Urgent need, no resources to fulfill a responsibility. It's not an option. It's actually an obligation that he has. But what did he have? What did he have? He had a friend. He had a responsibility. He had no resources to meet it, but he knew he had a friend. And he knew he had a friend that he could go to that would have what he needed at this time and in this place, in this circumstance. So we'll keep reading. Verse seven, I typed it out here. Which of you, Jesus is gonna say, will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed with me. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of, this is here's where the verse is gonna turn here, but because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now see, the listeners to this story would have laughed out loud at this point because there's absolutely no excuse for this man to act this way. Even for fear of being shamed by the neighbors, they know that in that circumstance, they would have gotten up and done whatever they needed to do to help their friend. They would have thought nobody, and this is exactly what Jesus is trying to get them to say. He says, which of you would do this? And they would honestly go, none of us. No one would ever do that. And this is what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. You see, most of the time when we read this story and the story that follows, we tend to teach it in relation to the Lord's prayer and say this is trying to encourage the persistence that God is after in prayer. Because oftentimes in most of your translations, if you don't have this word impotence, not impotence, impotence, it's gonna say persistence. But that is not the best way to understand this word. In most uses of that word, what you will find is shamelessness and boldness. Jesus, by starting out this story, listen, don't miss this because it's gonna be critical for you to get this. Jesus starts this story out after he teaches this prayer and says, which of you would do this? Obviously anticipating that they're gonna say, none of us. Because of the shamelessness of the request, because of the shamelessness of the friend that's come, none of us, because of our responsibility, would do that. What Jesus is teaching the people through this prayer and this story is not persistence that pays off in getting what you want. It's about the certainty of an answer. It's about the certainty of the provision for a need. It's about certainty for the provision of a resource that you don't have to meet a responsibility or a need that you have that's become urgent. It's not about persistence. It's about certainty. It's about certainty because surely, surely, as Jesus has taught and will continue to teach his disciples, a friend by definition is one who lays down his life for you. Certainly he wouldn't turn you away because of his inconvenience. So Jesus is saying, this is how you pray. Shamelessness, boldness, and with an awareness of the urgency that you have a God-given responsibility for which you have no resource to fulfill. And that certainly, though, you have a friend or a good father who will give you all that you need. This is what Jesus is teaching them. But what are they supposed to be shamelessly and boldly asking this midnight friend or this good father for? What is it that we're supposed to come for? He taught us to come for our daily bread. But that word bread, actually, or daily, excuse me, only appears twice in the Bible. The two times it appears in the Bible are the two times that Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer. Outside of Christian writings, they've only found one occurrence of that word 
and it's in a bookkeeping record from Upper Egypt. So no conclusion can actually be drawn from those records of what this word daily actually means. But in its usage, when it's broken out and all of its derivatives are used throughout literature, there are two possible understandings for this word. And it's either this, future or coming or, or more literally for tomorrow or needed. The most literal understanding of this word daily is for tomorrow or needed. And so why does Jesus use this very rare and very unique word. Of all the words Jesus could have used when he taught us how to pray and he's trying to explain how we relate to the Father in these circumstances, why does he use such a rare and strange word? And I honestly, again, I I honestly think Jesus is using this rare word because there's a very unique bread, a very unique request that he is trying to get us to understand and he is trying to get to shape our our petitions and shape our understanding and shape our requests. A bread that which without we can't fulfill our God-given responsibilities. A bread that if we don't have from our good father, there is no way that we can fulfill his responsibilities and his purpose for his name to be hallowed in our life, for his name to be hallowed through our life, for his kingdom to come in our hearts, and for his will to be done in our life and through us in this place. Without this very unique bread, there is no way we can do the very thing that we petition him to make real in our hearts and to use us to exceed come and to see spread in this place that he has placed us. It's a very unique bread. And so I think he uses this very rare word. So how does he actually explain it? What is that mystery bread? Look at verse 11. This is fun. You ready? Verse 11. What father, back to the framework. Remember, it's a relationship. What father among you, rhetorical question. He's expecting them to say, none of us. If his son asks for a fish, would instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. None of us. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give? Now you're thinking, what did he tell us to ask for? Bread. How much, if, if your child asks for a fish, who's going to give him a stone or a scorpion or a snake? How much more so your heavenly father, your good father, your perfect father, who, who all the longings and the wants that you have for your kids is just a shadow of the hope and the joy and the longing that he has for his kids will give you, and you expect him to say bread, but what does he say? How much more will he give you the Holy Spirit? How much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This bread that we pray for, this resource that we are empty of, that we need to fulfill the responsibility that we have, the urgent responsibility that we have to do the thing that we're supposed to do, to hallow his name, to see his kingdom come in our heart, to submit our will and our desire to pursue our own fame and our own name to his desires for his glory. What do we need to actually see that become a reality in our own hearts because we can't do it? And what are we supposed to come to our good father and say, give me this day what I need to meet what you have called me to do tomorrow, to meet this need right now that I have to fulfill tomorrow? He says, how much more so would your good father give you the Holy Spirit? What we need from our father more than anything is his spirit. And all the goodness of God to not withhold himself from us. 
We talk so often about the reality of Jesus and the personhood of Jesus. And we talked in the beginning of this prayer, the personhood of God and how he's revealed himself as, as intimate and personal with his people, but no more personal than actually giving us himself and his spirit. How good of a father to say, here is what you need. I will give you all that you need. I will give you everything that you need to do that which I require of you and call you to do that I've wired you to do to find joy and delight in as you do it and I will give you what you need to do it and it's probably not what you think. It's, it's probably not what you think you want or need. But as he begins to wire our hearts, as he begins to do the work of cultivating our soul, as he begins to do the work of continuing to pull up those weeds that continue to try to spread their roots throughout our heart that seek our own name and seek our own glory, as he does that work in us, he has promised to give us himself. He has promised to give us his Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, is the needed bread, the most basic necessity for living the life of a child of God. The most basic necessity for living the life of a child of God Daily bread is the Holy Spirit. He's all we need. He is all that we need. He's not just the daily bread. He is the sufficient bread. He's also tomorrow's bread. He makes the Holy Spirit. He makes the coming reality of God's kingdom. The coming grandeur of God's kingdom. The coming reality of of what life will be like when Jesus returns and makes all things the way that he had created them to be a reality in our life today. He links our today with God's tomorrow. He, Paul said, is the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance. He is that midnight reality, that midnight resource, that need in the in-between time of the day. He links God's tomorrow with our today. And he brings the riches of God's kingdom into our poverty today. He brings the resources of God's kingdom into our life today as we live in this in-between time, this midnight hour between what God has already started and what God will actually do. He brings the resources that we need in this in-between time to do what God has called us to do in the midst of the sin that still wrecks, wrecks God's good creation. He has come, as John said, I wish we had the time to go through it, he has come, as John said, in John chapter 14 through 16. Read those when you get a chance about the coming Holy Spirit. He, he has come to be our helpmate. He has come to be alongside of us and in us, to be our comforter, our guide, to reveal Jesus to us. That is our greatest need. And John said very clearly that Jesus is gonna go and it's better for us that way, Jesus said, because if I don't go, God's not gonna send the Holy Spirit. He's not gonna send the helper. And his job as he comes is to reveal what I have done and who I am to you to convict you of sin, to know the depths of your need for me, but then to reveal righteousness to you because I won't be here anymore, Jesus said. The Holy Spirit has come so that he can do the work of cultivating our hearts and our souls to reveal and convict us of the sin and of the, the pride and the worship that continues to choke out our relationship with God but at the same time to reveal the righteousness of God in Christ to our hearts. There's nothing more than we need than God himself to show us how dependent we need to be on him and how independent from him we try to be, but then to show us that our need is met by him through Jesus. This is what God has promised to give us. This is what Jesus is after as he teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need today to meet the urgent need, the responsibility, 
that we have been given today and tomorrow and this bread that he has called us to want more than anything. This need is him. It's his Holy Spirit. This prayer, this petition, give us this day our daily bread. It really comes alive. It really begins to come alive and become electric in our hearts the more we begin to realize the urgency of our need for him. The urgency of our need for God's grace. The urgency of God's need for mercy, our need for God's mercy. As we begin to see that we now share in a God-given responsibility to let God's name be hallowed in our hearts and lives. To see his kingdom come in our life and through our life to the places that we live. To be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's as we begin to see the urgency of that need that this prayer becomes electric because we begin to see that like he's taught in Luke 11, we have a midnight friend. Like he taught us in Matthew and and Luke, we have a good father in heaven who's promised to give us everything we need to meet the responsibility and the urgency of the need that we have. He gives us himself that we might fulfill our responsibility to him to see his name hallowed in our life and his kingdom come in our life and his will be done in our life, and that he gives us what we need to understand the righteousness and forgiveness that comes from Jesus so that we can see the magnitude of the forgiveness that's come because of our sin, and we can show that forgiveness to others. This is what we need, and we'll see as we go forward. And so we can come because of who God is and who we are in relation to him with boldness and shamelessness. We can come to him like a child, and we can express our needs, we can express our desires, we can express our fears with a confidence and a trust that he will always give us what we need to do what he has called us to do. And we can come with boldness and shamelessness and say, Father, give us this day our daily bread. And we can trust and we can know that he will give us himself and provide for us through his grace and through his spirit, what we need to accomplish, what he's called us to do. This is unbelievably good news. Unbelievably good news. God gives us himself. God gives us himself to meet the very need that he's teaching us to pray for. Unbelievable. And as the prayer that Jesus is teaching us as this becomes an instrument in God's hand to do work in our hearts as we begin to pray like he's teaching us to pray as we begin to think on what he's teaching us to pray and we begin to let that do work in our hearts this petition this central petition this middle petition that prayer turns on begins to become alive it begins to become electric it begins to become tangible and real And a great joy begins to build in our hearts because we see that he gives us what we need and ultimately it's what we want the most because it's him. It's him. It's him. And the question that we have to ask ourselves as we continue to go through this prayer and as we deal with this petition today and and forward is, is this what you want? Is it what you want? Do you recognize your need? Do you recognize that God providing for us in himself through his spirit is sufficient 
for all that we ultimately need and that our good Father will give us everything we need. Everything we need to do that which he's called us to do today. And so we can trust him and begin to deal honestly with the anxiety that comes from feeling like maybe he won't. That's what we have to deal with. This is what he challenges us with in this prayer. To see him for who he is. To see our need for what it is. And to see his provision for as great, as great as it is. Give us this day our daily bread. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Father, thank you that you are a good and perfect father and that every desire that I have to see joy in my kids' life, every desire that I have to see my kids succeed, every desire that I have to see my kids' hearts full of joy is just a shadow of yours. But our desire as parents is modeled after your desire as our father. So you desire these things in a way that I, in my sin and imperfection, could never perfectly want. How much more so would our heavenly father, would you give us the Holy Spirit, what we need when we ask? Lord, build a confidence in us in you. Lord, show us where we fail to trust you. Show us where we fail to see you as different than you revealed yourself to be in our life. Lord, help us to see you as our heavenly father, our good father, and help us to desire, to desire your glory and to trust in your provision and your sufficiency. Holy Spirit, come and do your work of convicting us of sin and of revealing the righteousness of Christ in our hearts. That is what we need most to see and to taste and to know our need for you and to taste and to experience your provision in Jesus. What we need is to see Jesus. And this, Father, is what you have promised to do for us. Holy Spirit, come convict where we need to be convicted. That's a good thing. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for coming and convicting us. A good dad, a good parent does that. Thank you for showing us where we were wrong and thank you then for pointing us to what we didn't know that we really needed. Thank you for showing us Jesus. Please, Holy Spirit, convict us today and as we go through the week of where we have failed to see Jesus, acknowledge Jesus, delight in Jesus and then show us who he is. Show us new, show us fresh who he is. Work in us, cultivate in us a character of heart and soul that reflects yours, that reflects your character. We ask that your name be hallowed in our life, that your kingdom come and that your will be done. And we ask with shamelessness, give us this day what we really need. Father, give us this day our daily bread. Amen.